0: Mm. Mm-hmm. you. Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Mark. I'm Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And I'm Lena. So, today we're going to talk about unity. Yep.
1: Unity within the church.
2: One that's filled with all kinds of misunderstandings. Yeah.
1: It's a very important doctrine, but yeah, there's a lot of... and misapplications because of the misunderstandings. We are not unified on unity. (laughs) Well, uh, we'll get into it. All right. All right.
2: But yeah, it, it is. because It's kind of like judging or yeah. judgment. People say you're not supposed to judge, which is, of course, a judgment. Because they right. never thought about what the Bible actually teaches. We had to do one on that, too. Not tonight. Misjudging? Yeah, misjudging. Or what? what is a Christian supposed to do? Yeah. Should they judge? When should they judge? Yeah. Because I judged somebody on Facebook the other day who was judging opposed and saying that you're not supposed to judge people. So I
1: judged them Yeah, and schooled them. And now people listening are judging you.
2: Yep. I don't care.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we need to talk about unity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so before we do, uh, maybe it'd be helpful to get into the reason for unity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, why is it even a staple or a hallmark of the church of the people who are considered to be the people of God? Um, and so we would say that the reason for unity actually um, results from an overflow of God's nature, um, God's essential nature. And right. when you, Yeah. When you use the word essential, that's a technical term. It's um, speaking to his very essence, his very being, who he is and what he is by his very nature. Um, and so we say the, the, the person of God necessitates unity because God himself is to be essentially triune. Um, so, so we, we understand that God is Trinitarian, um, that is the father, the son, and the spirit, that he's one God in three persons. There's a lot of mystery in that. Um, but I'm actually writing some material for us to actually talk about that. Yeah, we're going to do that.
2: We'll still leave it as a big mystery, but (laughs) with more (laughs) words. We'll create more questions. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so quick, because we are going to hopefully Lord willing do another episode on this, but there's two terms or concepts when it comes to the Trinity that theologians will talk about. Um, so, But what, these are these are keepers. People
2: need to know these. Um, he, so it's worth us talking about now and again when we do the Trinity. So what's our first one?
1: So the first one is the ontology of the Trinity. Which is just a great word yeah, to say. it's just fun. Um, and it speaks to the very person of the Trinity or the essence of what God is. His, his their, ontology. His being. Yeah, his being. Um, And so again, we'll get into that uh, more when we hopefully do that episode on it, but um, every person of the Trinity, it's important to understand, isn't a third part of God, Um, but rather each person of the Trinity is fully and 100% the fullness of God. And that's the mystery. That's where your mind kind of blows up a little bit. Um, But each person of the Godhead by his very essence and nature is the fullness of every attribute an aspect of what God is. Right. Yeah. So, contrast that to what's the other term? Well, the other one, though, then, is uh,
2: the economic trinity, which gets into um, how he functions how, how God functions in each person's different roles. And this is where people create problems because they confuse the two. When we're talking about his being, we're talking about this ontology. When we're talking about his roles, we're talking about the economic aspect. And I think the word aspect is a really important concept there too. So uh, we don't, and we cannot say it's an ancient heresy to say that the father died on the cross. Um, and the sun doesn't indwell the church. And the spirit doesn't send forth the Son into the world. The Bible is very clear that each one of them had various roles and that they functioned those. And we keep those distinct, even though we also acknowledge that each person is fully God in himself, yeah. which it gets to be the mystery <laughs> part.
1: Right. So, th- so they have different roles in space, time, and history. Right. Um, and, and this is where it gets complex. So this is the deep stuff of theology, right? So so God is a Trinitarian God, but he's also triune. Um, that is to say, no person of the Trinity acts on their own accord apart from any other person of the Trinity.
2: Yeah, the Son doesn't go off and do his own thing. Right. Simple as that.
1: Yeah, or the spirit. Right, right. Um, but they function in complete unity and harmony in every sense. Um, there's one God, one mission, one purpose, uh, one glory, um, and so as we're going to see though, the last part of that's key, um, it's, it's for that one glory that they all work together in unity. He does all that he does to bring himself a singular glory. Um, so they all have, have different roles in space, time and history, but they're functioning in unity. And so just a, a quick example of this, you see it right away in the very first verses of the Bible, um, actually with creation. So in Genesis one, one through three, it says in the beginning, God." which I'm going to say is the father created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God. So there's the spirit, the third person, of the Trinity, the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Verse three, then God said, let there be light. And there was light And that speaking. What's the word was the word, the second person, the pre-incarnate right. son, right. if you will, of the Trinity. And so here we see all three persons of the Godhead working in complete unity, but to carry out the one single purpose of creation. God the Father creates, verse one, by the power of the Holy Spirit, verse two, and by what means? Will the Son, verse three. Um, and we already said it, but just in case anyone quibbles over God saying, we know from John one one, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse fourteen, that Word became flesh. So we know right. this is the second person of the Trinity. Colossians 1, 15 through 16, for by him, speaking of the son, all things were created. And so the son is the divine means then through which the father carried out that creative work. Um, And so he was there, he was in the beginning. Um, And so when it says that God said, we ought to understand that theologically as, as the son. So this one God's eternal plan and purposes was agreed upon by all persons of the Trinity, and as this one God determined and purposes one mission from eternity past, and so there's tri-unity within the Trinity. Right. Yeah. So we'll we'll flesh more of that out. That's kind of you know pretty technical. Yeah, we were flying high a little bit
2: there, but it, but it's important for people to understand when we're talking about unity. This is not a concept we're just coming up with, um, or even just randomly pulling a few verses. We're dealing with the need for Christian unity because it. Most properly reflects
1: yeah. the person of God. It's a it's a it's a it's an overflow or necessary result right. for the people of God. Then, um, well,
2: and then the opposite is true. Then, right? If there is disunity among the brethren, or unbiblical disunity, um, yeah, that's a that's a good qualifier. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so if it's an unbiblical type of disunity, then we're not before the world functioning as proper witness. And that's huge. I mean, because our whole purpose of being is to be a faithful witness of the, of the excellencies, if you will, of God, like Mm -hmm. first Peter says.
1: Yeah. So, so um, the people of God then are said to be brought into unity with each other. Um, They're they're brought into unity with God. And so by the very necessity of that, they're then brought into unity with each other. Right. So we have some examples of this.
2: Just, just a couple, well, actually, I think just one, no, oh, a few more. Um, <laughs> in Matthew, verse uh, chapter five, twenty-three and twenty-four, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ says, "If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, so it's not you against your brother; it's it's that you've done somebody wrong. Uh, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother." and then come and present your offering. That's a huge one because it shows how high of a value that our Lord puts upon a reconciled relationship between brothers. Um, and, and that it's more important than even worship. In fact, you can't properly worship mm-hmm. without it. So we always do that with the Lord's Supper. Every, yeah, I was
3: going to say Lord's Supper.
2: Right. And we drive that home and on one level, it does my heart good when I see some people just let the cup pass by or the bread cup pass by, um, and it's neat when I see them then at at the end of the service go seek somebody out, and uh, and and what they're oftentimes doing is just resolving something. Uh, but Paul, Paul's the one that's most brutal about this. He, uh, he consistently is urging the churches to be of one mind, and um, and labor together and work together and build one another up in the faith and grow in love for one another and these are so familiar to us that we let them fly over our head but uh in first Timothy he says some very bold things he says he wants the men to pray with holy hands and not having wrath or dissension he has a very very low view of those who harm that unity of the church he's like men we need you to be praying but we need you to make certain that when you're lifting your hands up in prayer, that they're holy and there's no dissension. There's no factiousness, no problems in in infighting, a purity. And so he says in Romans 16, that I urge you, brethren, this is verses 17 and 18. I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching, which you learned and turn away from them. That's very strong language. Uh, um, you know, reject these people. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And there's a lot there that we obviously can't unpack, but notice that he's talking about those who cause dissensions and hindrances. And we tend to think of that as just arguing. Um, you know dissensions that we're going to have fights, but then he he describes them with smooth and flattering speech. Mm-hmm. So it's not always right. creating disunity is not always through fights. It's uh, by bringing in strange doctrines and uh, slander and gossip and other kinds of things. Um, so much evil is done in the under the guise of a prayer request. Right. You're right. Yeah. Um, and then or the way. You do it Sure. sure. So the best the best one that shows how strong he is about this is in Titus 3 10 and 11 he says reject a factious man after a first and second warning knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. there's, there's, <laughs> there's nothing nice about that. Um, mm-hmm. He says, you don't even get the three or four steps of discipline. You get two. two. It's (laughs) like, you want to cause problems in the church, I'll give you a warning. You want to keep creating those problems, I'll give you another warning, then you're gone. You're just gone. And we've done that at our church, and it's been good. Uh, It's a little shocking for some people when they see how strong the elders of our church come out against people who are creating just fights and problems and um, splits. But we're doing it because... We have, we are not to embrace those people. We're not showing the love of Christ to them when we wink at them and say, well, that's just the way they are. Mm -hmm. So you you developed up some material on um, this whole thing through John 17.
1: Yeah. Well, you can't, I mean, you can't talk about unity and then ignore John 17. It's such a (laughs) definitive passage in many ways. One would think you can't, but. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. so so, in John seventeen, remember John fourteen through seventeen is what's formerly known as the farewell uh, discourse. And then verse seven or chapter seventeen is that f- final high priestly prayer, as it's commonly referred to. Um, and in that, Jesus is essentially praying, among other things, but he he's praying for the unity of God's people. Um, but that is a very misunderstood and I would say oftentimes misapplied passage. Um, Many use it to argue for why Christians and various local churches must strive to be in unity with each other in terms of what they do. Um, So in examples, you know, combined worship services, combined social works in the city, um, combined youth events, combined gatherings for prayer, so on and so forth. Um, and then if, if churches choose not to be part of those types of things, either for good reasons or bad reasons, but whatever the reason, they're then often accused of being divisive or actually walking in disobedience right. to John 17.
2: In fact, we've been accused of that by some in the past.
1: Yeah, we have. Yeah, for sure. Um, but the question is, when we're dealing with this passage is, what was Jesus actually doing in this prayer? Um, and, and then in light of that, are these indictments that other churches make against other churches for not doing combined things within the local context um, legitimate. Um, and so what I would say is when it comes to John 17, it's important to begin by understanding that, that Jesus wasn't just revealing some kind of hopeful desire <laughs> of his, um, this wasn't a sentimental or, or wishful sentiment on Jesus' part. He's not simply revealing his heart or, or you know, pouring out an emotional passion for what he hopes will happen that he may or may not have have control over. It's just this desire, this wish, this sentiment. Um, but in the context, Jesus is making a request to the father to bring about some things, but he was going to bring them about through what he would soon accomplish on the cross. And so you have to read John 17 in the light of, or the shadow of of what's coming, namely the cross. Um, so remember, this was the night of Jesus' arrest. Um, this is his final prayer or request, if you will, of the father right before his crucifixion, um, hours from his arrest, and he's to be on the cross the very next day. And he knew that. Um, he knew his hour had come for why he was even sent into the world. And so what Jesus is doing is he's now praying that the father would actually bring into being the actual reason for that, which Jesus was sent. Right. Right. Um, and so in verses 20 through 24, it's clear that one of these reasons was to accomplish the unity of those for whom he was about to die. Um, so not only would they be the unified people of God, but they'd also be unified in his mission, um, they're to be incorporated into this, this eternal God's purposes, the, these Trinitarian purposes, um, which according to verse chap, uh, chapter 17 and verse 24 is ultimately the glorification of God himself. That's why he's unifying. Him. Right. Um, so, so in light of that, then how should we understand the prayer? Um, well, again, among other things, Jesus is praying for unity but in light of what he was about to accomplish in his cross work, it, it's through this work that unity would be accomplished and brought into being. It's not a hopeful desire. It's not a wish. It would happen. And so this is one of the great reasons, of course, for Christ's work on the cross, among other things, forgiveness of sin, so on and so forth. Um, sure, <laughs> important too. things. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things is unity. Um, and so he's praying for that and he's about to execute that or accomplish that on the cross but that unity would then be manifested or realized in Acts chapter 2 at the outpouring of the Spirit. Now, repeat that
2: again, because I want I want us to really emphasize, because we're going to then pick that up a little bit
1: later in Ephesians. Yeah, he, so he's, he's praying for unity, he requests the unity of the Father, then he accomplishes that unity in the cross work, and then that unity is realized or comes into being in Acts chapter 2 at the outpouring of the Spirit right. at Pentecost. Very Um, important. Yeah. So again, this gets into the idea then of spirit baptism, which of course we've done already episodes on that. Um, But this was the beginning of the church and therefore the beginning of the realized unity of the church. And that's, what's important to understand. Well, Uh, but let me put a plug in for that episode again, because we did spirit
2: baptism, indwelling and something, uh, regeneration or something like filling. That's right. Um, Thank you. Uh, And, people may be still thinking what's the big deal with us making such distinctions like that well because the bible does but also cuz it gets into something like mm-hmm. unity you know yep. if if you don't understand what spirit baptism is then this what you just said won't make much sense or you're going to start thinking something about miraculous or this yeah, or that yeah. rather than simply what spirit baptism is which is how a person is brought into the body of Jesus Christ right. which gives them the hint already of the nature of the unity that Christ is going to
1: accomplish and it also gets into the beginning of the church mm-hmm. when it began but yeah right. yeah so so the in light of that and the point to understand is is John seventeen shouldn't be used to argue that Christians should strive for unity because well the prayer is somehow revealing this this wishful heart or Um, desire of Jesus. Um, Rather, it reveals actually what would happen due to what Jesus was about to accomplish. Um, And so, as I mentioned in Acts 2, this is explicitly seen in the many different people groups and languages that are present. Um, In fact, I would argue that's the function of tongues in that passage. Um, It was a sign that there'd be no more boundaries between the various languages and people. Rather, they're all coming into unity at the outpouring of the Spirit and being arranged as a new singular people. And beyond that, I would argue it's actually the reverse of what we see in Babel back in Genesis, where God intentionally divides the people for his purposes. And then here he's now bringing them back together um, in the languages at the outpouring of the spirit. They're now unified.
3: That's a very interesting point.
1: Yeah. For for a new mission. Now they had a mission that was opposed to God in Genesis.
3: (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah.
1: But now they're on mission with him. And so he brings them back into unity. Thanks a lot for stealing some of my sermon material. When I get to Genesis, <laughs> love. Did I, or did I just give you some sermon material? We'll never know, will we? <laughs> it's true.
3: <laughs> that, that I just have to say though that that gives that phrase tongues or languages in Acts two such a sweet, amazing, miraculous meaning mm-hmm. in that the unifying aspect of that. Yeah, you know, and it's.
1: And yeah, it's, it's the one issue that creates... Well, so much not, disunity. Not the one issue, but an issue that creates a an incredible issue. amount of disunity. That's yeah.
3: cheapening what, the magnitude of what's just happened there. Yeah. You
1: know? Yep. And they all speak in, the great and wonderful things yeah. of God. Yep. We'll, we'll do Different something topic. on sure. tongues some yeah. other day. <laughs> um, so in light of all that, though, unity is, is a great indicative. That is, it's a fact. It's a, a biblical reality. It's not an imperative, at least here in John 17.
2: So he's not commanding, go be unified. Yeah, right. Nor is it a wish, like you said. Mm-hmm. I hope that when they see me die that that will bring them together. He's saying when I die that something's going to be accomplished in reality in fact. Yeah. Um and and your argument is Acts 2 describes it yeah. when the spirit's poured out. 100%. Right. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. I think that's so
1: important and yet so subtle. Yeah, it was accomplished, right? Um so so Jesus prayed for it. The father then accomplished it through the work of the son and then brought it into being through the outpouring of the spirit. That is incredibly Trinitarian. Yes. Yeah. yeah very Trinitarian. Tri- it is it is a, a unification of work. Um, so the church now becomes one with, with this triune God. The church now joins, as we said, that triune God in his purpose and mission to bring himself glory. And that's, that's the ultimate purpose. So in light of all that, um, you got some stuff. Let's talk about theology and application of this as it's fleshed out in, in Paul.
2: Yeah, so I, I already made the point. Paul is probably the most vocal about the need for unity and not having any uh, place for improper disunity and factiousness and, and whatnot. But, um, and one of the best places to see it kind of lay it, work itself out, and so it's it's a nice little paradigm is in Ephesians chapter 4. And what we'll look at is verses 1 through 6 and 11 through 16. And what we see in those are two different types of um, unity. Does anyone have that, Pat? Lainey, you want to read it? I'll
3: read it. I'll
2: uh, read just it. Read 1 through it. 6. <laughs> And then, Mark, you want to grab uh, 11 through 16? He's making
3: mm-hmm. a meme right now. No, I'm not. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it's the memes that brings everybody Instagram. together. <laughs> all right, so Ephesians uh, four, 4, 1, one through six. 6.
3: Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all.
2: Okay, so that's the first type of unity um, or aspect, and this is a present existing one, and we'll explain that in a second, but it's a present existing one that we must be diligent to protect. And then there's a second uh, type of unity or aspect would be a better way of saying it in verses 11 through 16. Do you want to do that?
0: Yeah, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love.
2: Okay. Um, So that's a second type of unity, and that's an imperfect one. It's one that the church is still growing and that we have to be diligent to promote. So we have one type of unity that is present and existing and we're to protect it, and the other is imperfect and growing and developing, and we need to promote it. So he wants us, first of all, to preserve the unity of the spirit. That's the one that is already existing, which is Mm -hmm. what we just got into with John 17 and Acts 2. And he also says we're to continue to grow and work within the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith. So if somebody is actually listening to this with their Bible open, that word until is very, very important because it's a temporal word. Mm -hmm. It it shows us that we're dealing within time and space, and that's not yet attained unless Mm -hmm. anyone wants to think that the entire church has a complete unity of the faith, which we'll talk about. And the answer is no, they haven't. Um, but he's not telling us how to get, uh, this unity of the spirit. He's simply telling us to maintain it. Um, and that, so the first aspect is maintain, preserve that unity of the spirit. Um, and and that unity is how you and I have our standing before God in Christ, and that's what we talked about. It's that Spirit baptism that Paul tells us that by one Spirit or with one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's that unity. It's not some supernatural thing in the way of um, you know Bethel, Redding, California Bethel Church kind of supernatural events. It's that gl- much better supernatural event where, in faith, we trusted in Christ. And at that moment, we were baptized with the Spirit and we were brought into a genuine union with Jesus Christ. And yeah. every Christian has, has it. It. Yeah. it. And
1: yeah.
2: that's that unity. And we are to preserve that. Um, we are to be working very hard at that. And so, just to walk the people through the verses that Lena uh, read. How do we do it is then the question, how do we preserve it? We don't have to gain it because we have it. Right. We're only to preserve it. Right. And he says, first of all, the first thing you have to do is understand your calling. It's a calling um, that is a work of God where he calls you and I to be saved. He draws us to a son. It's that moment in your time and existence as a person where for the first time the gospel made sense. Um, and, and you believed it, and you were converted. Uh, that was actually the calling. Um, and it's defined for us in verses 4 through 5. Can you read 4 and 5 again easily?
3: Sure. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all.
2: Okay, so we, hear, we see in in those verses basically the great goal of our father in heaven because what he wants to do is conform us into the image of his son Um, that's his passion as our father and it should be our passion and so all of us should yearn and strive to be more fully into uh, made into the image of christ Uh, it's not an individual calling it's a corporate or collective calling in which he calls us into christ um, he's saying to them and he's saying to us that we as a church need to walk in a manner that's proper, and a manner that's fitting, according to one being called, or that one calling that all of us participate in. And so we don't just do what we feel like doing. Uh, one of the ways we preserve that unity of the Spirit is that we recognize that God has called us for a purpose. And that purpose is to be conformed into the image of Christ. And so we should be thinking about that and considering the wisdom of our actions and our, our motives and, and goals. And if that's not understood, then you'll see little need for the body of Christ.
3: Yeah,
2: uh, I mean, if you, if you got a good TV show on, there's a sporting event, there's this or that. You know, mm-hmm. um, I actually wrote a blog article many, many, many years ago um, on the sin of occasionality where you you know you if if you don't put it in your heart that church is a non-negotiable then it will always be negotiable mm-hmm. and it will always have an exception um and that's something that you know we did with our children is we show them that even when Mom and Dad were sick, we went to church. Yeah. Um, well I had to preach, but yeah. you know we, we were there. and if the doors were open, we were there. and part of that is to show them that it's a very important aspect of being part of the church. Yeah. and um, and that's all we're talking about here is we've all been called together by God, and mm-hmm. that's part of the what goes on on a Sunday when we gather together in His name. So that's her calling, to grow up into this fullness of Christ. Uh, The second is to live in humility. Uh, He says that, um, or I would say humility is just simply the grease that moves the church along. Um, It's a root attitude, a base attitude that everything else flowers and comes into being. Um, In fact, it's a very common command for um, believers is to walk in humility uh, there's no place for pride in the church, but it's so often at the root of so much of our disunity right. and breakdown in the church is somebody is just being arrogant. Um, and then we got gentleness um, or meekness, depending on your translation. And again, it's a great word because it's um, power under control. It's It's the idea of it's one of the fruits of humility is wherever humility is, you're going to find meekness. Christ was humble and therefore he was meek. He was the most powerful man ever, right? He's God in human flesh, but it was always done with a gentleness and a meekness. And then finally it's going to be patient. Um, when you have a humble person, a meek person, you're going to find a person who's patient. Um, a patient person is one who's been humbled actually, through the trials of life, you know, they, they're bearing the scars of what it looks like to walk with Christ. And that's what James chapter one gets into. Um, if you're patient, you know, all, all that means is that you recognize that God's will for you is a constant unfolding work uh, in which there's no mistakes by him. And so you learn, instead of becoming angry and dissatisfied with God, mm-hmm. you, you, you rest it hurts. You may rest with much tears and many questions, but you begin to rest because somewhere in here, God is at work and I'm going to trust that. And I'm going to bear up under that and it bears forth the fruit of patience. So when you combine all of that, we walk in accordance to our calling, we're, we're walking in humility, we're walking in meekness, we're walking in patience, you're promoting unity. Mm-hmm. And that's all he says. Yeah. Um, I would
3: say patience too. With, I mean, it allows you to bear up with others too, because you've seen what God has done, hopefully, you know, yeah. and then you can see that they he's working on them too.
2: Yeah. It, it, actually, it's a good, very good point. And also helps you remember that you were them once perhaps, mm-hmm. and, and God just had to take you through certain things. And so, you know, you can be a mutual encouragement rather than just seeing them as a hindrance to you. Right. Um, so that, that then, is the unity of the Spirit, uh, and or, or how you preserve it. Well, we still don't know what it is. Well, he describes it in verses 4 through 6, which you descri- just read, and that was uh, one faith, one Father, one Lord, one baptism, one Spirit. And all of this is what brings out the unity of the Spirit, is that when we come to Christ, we come under all of those ones. Mm-hmm. And you don't have a different word than I do. You don't have a different spirit. You don't have a different anything. We're all have this common denominator and that's our unity given to us through the spirit. Mm -hmm. And so we need to guard it. And the way we guard it is not some sneaky way. It's through those qualities of gentleness and patience and whatnot, right? And then we have the second one. This is the one that we're supposed to be working toward and that's unity of the faith. In verse 13... Would, would you read that again, just verse 13?
0: Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Okay, so there's that time term or word,
2: until. There's a task that needs to be, uh, that the church needs to be busy doing, and it's not finished, and that task will never be finished until two specific events have occurred. The one is that the church as a whole, not just one church, a local church, but the church as a whole attains to the unity of the faith. And the second is that the church attains to the knowledge of the Son of God. And you could even make the argument they're one and the same. Yeah. Yeah. But a unity of the faith uh, is, again, one of those technical terms. Um, do you feel I mean I'm kind of springing this without any warning sure. just explain yeah, just, what the faith when we say the faith
1: not just faith but the word the and faith path. yeah it's got the the before yeah. the faith yeah um yeah it's a it's a technical phrase in the new testament almost always in reference to um a body that body of truth or that body of doctrine Jude will say it as um earnestly contend or fight so boxing terms earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Right. So it came from Christ through the apostles and out of the church. And, and Paul, so,
2: Paul says that people have fallen away from the, the faith. faith. Yeah. It's not their faith. Right. right. It's that body of truth. That's yeah. what they've fallen away from. They they've apostatized.
1: Yeah. Right. They they've they've either just rejected it total or they've followed after some form right. of false teaching.
2: Right. And so that's one thing that we're supposed to be striving toward a unity of, a unity of doctrine that's biblical doctrine, um, that knowledge of the Son of God. It, Paul talks about that twice in this letter, uh, about him praying that they would grow in the knowledge of Christ. It, it's a supernatural work of God uh, that Paul understands uh, for us, we need to be asking God to cause us and to uh, make us grow in that knowledge. Um, but how does it happen? Well, it comes through sound doctrine. Mm-hmm. That's there's no mysterious trick here. And again, it's not by having some secret revelation, that's Gnosticism, which is a heresy where we have our private revelations and God is showing us this, and we're having this dream and on and on. It is through the growing in the sound doctrine that God, the Word, the Son has revealed, that has once for all been delivered, that we're to be fighting for. That's how we grow in our knowledge of the Son of God. Um, and yet there's that aspect of growing in it that God does as we read his word and he begins to break our hearts down and enlarge them, if you will, to see better what's what's going on. So it's it's a growth in sound doctrine, but it's not just a knowledge of it. Um it it's beginning to see Christ Himself. So how can the church grow in the unity? Well, uh, it's going to be through gifted teachers of various types. Uh, in verse seven, he says, "But to each one of us, now he's individualizing us. He's taking us from the corporate body, and he's saying to each one of you in that corporate body called the church, grace was given, and and that grace is gifts. Um, and we won't get into that. We'll we'll do with deal with why that's gifts um, on on a podcast about gifts, but." Specifically, then, he lists four types of people given to the church. He says that he has given us apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. There's four types. Now, it's a big popular movement. Again, this is where we have to be precise about the fivefold ministry. And so, are you a pastor or are you a teacher? But actually, the pastor teacher is one group. And and it creates all kinds of unnecessary problems and actually disunity of the faith because people are not understanding basic grammar, grammar. <laughs> right? which gets us back to our grammar that we keep beating <laughs> on. Um, but these are the people that God has given to the church to cause us and to help us to grow into that unity of the faith. So why, why did he do it? Verse 12, the reason he gave us these people is for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's the purpose. So Christ said in Matthew sixteen that he's going to build his church, and this passage is describing how it's going to be done. The purpose was giving the purpose of the giving his people the apostles, and we won't get into the apostolic movement right now. But the he, he the reason he gave us apostles and prophets and and evangelists, and pastor, and teachers is so that the church, not these people can do the work, but the, so the church can be equipped to do the work that they've been called to do. It, it's to equip, to make complete, to train, um, to maturity. That's the work mm-hmm. of all pastors. Yeah, um, It's not that they're trying to just attract people or fill The church or something like that. It's specifically to equip the men and women there who are believers so that they can go and do the work that God has called each of them to do. Then if you look at verse 12, he says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. So now we're seeing this building up. That's that unity that's coming through the teaching ministry of the word of God, which is going to build them up in the faith. And then he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So that's, that's the idea that's going on here, is that right now, we have the unity of the Spirit, and we are to maintain that through these gentle, humble attitudes, um, on the other side, we also recognize that there's not a unity of the faith, and we know that for a fact. I mean, we've got churches that we simply don't agree with on certain parts of their doctrine, and they would say the same of us. Um, that's why the pastors and teachers are supposed to be doing their work and faithfully laboring so that they can build up the body until they start to come into a greater unity. So where good teaching is occurring, you're also then growing
1: into better unity, right?
3: yeah
1: all right, so how do we apply that? um yeah, so a, an application of this is actually and we've actually talked about this often is um, denominations in our view aren't really a bad thing actually, I think they're a good thing, yeah they're a gift of God yeah, so we, we're all we all have the unity of the spirit and we're commanded to maintain that and one of the ways we can do that is through denominations right like where you can worship in purity of truth and what you understand, the well, faith to be saying right yeah, now. Yeah, in good yeah. conscience, right? right?
2: Because if my conscience is I'm a paedo-baptist, I believe we got to baptize the babies, and I'm in the Baptist church, right. every time I see somebody with a new baby, I'm thinking, get that baby baptized. Uh, I mean, there's not a unity of the faith, and there's really, a, I could become a big pain in the rear for people. Sure.
1: Yeah. You know, you'll often hear the, the Roman Catholic Church say that the fact that there's so many denominations, that's therefore right. the evidence that... Um, Protestantism, for lack of a better phrase, um, is evidence that they're not part of the true church. Right. And that's bogus. It's bogus on multiple
2: levels. There's just as many quote-unquote denominations in the Roman Catholic Church. You've got your Jesuits and Franciscans. But the reality is that God actually helps preserve that unity while we're growing Through the denominations, so I mean, we—the one thing I can say, like, I don't agree with much of the doctrine of the Assembly of God um, being reformed, but I can also look at uh, an Assembly of God member, and if they know Christ. That person is my brother or sister, and we have to maintain that aspect of unity. I right. don't look at them as my enemy. They're not. They're my brother and sister. We're in strong disagreement on points of doctrine. But now, in light of that unity of the Spirit, we can talk, and we can debate, we can even argue, but we, we cannot ever treat the other person as a non-Christian. We need to, we need to guard that aspect of the unity. So that's where the rub comes when we are trying to pursue the unity of the faith, meaning I'm trying to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong, the first unity goes out the window yeah. um, and, and we can't. There has to be the ability to have a debate, even if it's strong, you, you can say strong things and still have that unity, mm-hmm. but it, never to the point where you are turning it as in a personal attack against a person. What's on the table is the subject let's say, baptism of the Spirit or speaking in tongues, you know, we can debate that and debate that and debate that. But what we can't start to do is say, you're stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean, now I'm making an ad hominem, an attack against you. And now I'm violating the command to preserve that unity of the Spirit, right. all while I'm claiming so spiritual of me to be cl- uh, pursuing the unity of the faith. So that that's the idea that we have to... We have to walk carefully. That's where that humility and meekness and patience is going to be at. And I, I, I failed at that as much as the next person. Um, it, and it's something you always having to go back and maybe make amends and mm-hmm. seek forgiveness, and yet also not back away from your position. Right. I mean, you still believe you're right on your doctrine, but the manner in which you perhaps pursued it was less than, right. you know, wise.
1: Yeah, and then a further application of that even is that we think it's therefore possible for you to leave a church without actually being divisive. Um, yeah. If you're leaving for reasons of of the faith. Um, the, the faith. The faith, right. Um, you know, we could say most churches who refuse to talk about doctrine for the sake of keeping unity um, oftentimes aren't really unified. Right. We, just, we, we would just say they're ignorant. I mean, they they don't even have a doctrinal statement. They don't really know what they're holding to or believing to most of the time. Um, And this is why actually many doctrinally shallow churches, um, they might not split over doctrine, but they'll certainly split over things like the color of the carpet. Right. Right. Um, And why? Because they're unified over something other than the faith. They don't have a strong, cohesive center over which they're coming together locally week in and week out. So they may have Christ in common, but that doesn't say much about their maturity. And so the moment you know, any real issue may come up, then all of a sudden there's disunity all over the place. Right. Um, but if they're unified in the spirit and in the faith, there, there's a wonderful maturity that can happen in any local church. And it's something that Christ, of course, desires and intended.
2: Right. And that's what we we yearn for at Missio is that we can build the people up in the faith and have people get a better and better understanding of what is the Bible saying while we work hard at maintaining the unity of spirit. And the more that those two come into um, closer proximity to one another, there's just a peace yeah. in that church that a lot of people don't know what to do with when they come and visit, because they realize these people genuinely care for each other. Yeah. And yet they also say the same things, you know, not like robots. They actually cherish the same doctrines. They they, they treasure them because they they believe them to be correct and right. And of course, we would think that they were correct or right. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's our challenge is to preserve preserve that kind of unity uh, with all the believers in the spirit, all the while that we debate and and wrestle over the issues of um, the faith, the, faith, yeah. the doctrine. So that, that's, that's our little spiel on the nature of unity and why it's, necess- it's necessary. It's consistent with the nature of God the Trinity is a triunity, right? Yeah. Um, it was accomplished through Christ's death on the cross, and 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 His resurrection, and the subsequent outpouring of the Spirit that brings us into that spiritual unity with one another.
1: It's where it's realized, right?
2: Yeah. That's so that it, we have everyone has that unity, and while we maintain that through these certain attitudes that Paul gives us in Ephesians four, we we struggle and strive to grow into the unity of the faith. Simple as that.